It's a real joy for us to be here, sincerely. Uh, I feel like there's something extremely obvious about your church. Number one, you love God, and number two, you love each other. And I'm pretty sure that when Jesus was summing up everything that his ministry was about, he pretty much said those things. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You guys are doing it, and I want to thank you for that. My wife Jill is here today. It's always better when Jill's here. People think I'm better when Jill's here. And so I'm so glad that she's able to be with us this morning, and Jill, welcome. And we just love your pastor and wife, so we're just now getting to know Sherry a little bit better, but we're looking forward to more days. And then Pastor Jeremy, thank you for that prayer. I believe that's not the first time you've spoken to the Lord, and I'm glad to see that. You obviously are a praying church led by praying people, so praise God for that. And I'm excited to see what, the, what God the Holy Spirit does in our midst. So today, I want to begin by telling you a story. It's kind of a, a, a story that you might recognize, but I'm not going to tip you off too soon. I'm going to let you walk through it with us for just a few minutes. And then toward the end of this message, I'm going to tell you a few things that I think are important and that I think apply not just to the Bible characters, Old Testament and New Testament, but that I think apply to you. And you're thinking, you don't know me, and you're right, I probably don't know you, but I know how God works, how God has chosen to work, and that is that in every time, in every era, in every place, literally every place, God is at work. And he's looking for people to join with him, and I think you are those people. So we're going to spend some time on this story. Long ago, in a land far, far away. Doesn't that sound like a great way to start a story? Long ago, in a land far, far away, a man lived with his wives, with an S. You already know this is one of those kind of stories, right? A man lived with his wives, two wives to be exact. One of his wives had children. One of his wives could not. And the one without the children cried out to God regularly, annually as they made pilgrimage, probably on a daily basis, until one day she made a promise to God and she said, if God, if you'll give me a son, I will return him to you in service of the priest. And you know God granted her request. And the boy had a lovely name, a fine name, probably the greatest of all names, some of you that are ahead of me on the story, you already know, but his name was Samuel. So what a fine name, right out of the Bible. And, and his mother declared over him prior to his birth and at his birth, Nazarite vows. Now, these aren't Nazarene vows. Some of them are similar, but these are Nazarite vows. And to summarize those, essentially, it was this. He was never to cut his hair. He was never to drink alcohol, and he was never to touch anything that was dead, so these are kind of Old Testament Nazarite vows. He grew up in service in the tabernacle with the aging priest Eli and the Ark of the Covenant. And God spoke to Samuel. In fact, his name literally means heard of God. In fact, some of you that are people who've hung around the church, you know that oftentimes God can be referred to as Elohim. The E-L, the L part of that is also a part of Samuel's name, Samuel. And so that's God's name making its way in. Samuel played an interesting role in the life of Israel. He was the last of the judges. So you might remember the judges because you remember uh, Samson, right? Known for his amazing strength. I would point out also that Sam is also a part of that name. But anyway, just to move on. Samson had that amazing strength and that fabulous hair, and you know maybe his whole story. Samuel is the last of the judges. 
Samuel is the first of the prophets. So when we find this character Samuel in the Old Testament, not Samuel the baby boy growing up under Eli the priest, but as we begin to get into his life, we recognize he stands at this this crossroads in the life of God's people when God is moving from the judges who were like, they spoke for God all the time, so they didn't need earthly rulers. We're moving from that to another era And Samuel sort of bridges that gap for us. He traveled the territory leading the nation in times of peace and in times of war. And he did not have Samuel, did not have superhuman strength. But he was, without question, the leader of the people of God in his day. Highly regarded, highly respected, and even at times feared, which is super interesting to me. Eventually, God's people, as you know, get in a fight with the Philistines. Seems like they're always fighting the Philistines. Or somebody whose last name ends in ite, right? Amorites and the Moabites and the Jebusites and on and on. But this time it's the Philistines and God's people are in a battle with them. And God's people have a king that they requested and his name is Saul. And by this time in the story that I'm telling you, his leadership is rapidly disintegrating. He's disobeying God. And since God had blessed him, and put him in as king, that's a bad thing when he began to disobey God. Things had to change. And so in these days, when the king of God's people is not doing so good, God begins to speak to his judge slash prophet, Samuel, and say, hey, Samuel, we've got to do something about this. My king is losing it. So by the time we get to this story now, Samuel is an old man. I don't know if this is right or not, but his beard's down to his knees. I don't know, but he's an old guy. I imagine according to what we know about him and what legend has told us about Samuel the prophet, he was a a thick and a stocky man, built like a fire hydrant, you know, just like tough. And from a distance, he looked like a fountain because the white hair just kind of poured out of his head. And he moved about with confidence, unhurried, sometimes even leisurely. He had within himself a confidence that only God can give us, that regardless of circumstance, there is a peace deep within. That's what Samuel possessed. So Samuel decides to head out for a town that we know in the New Testament because it's a famous town, Bethlehem. It also existed in the Old Testament. And that's where Samuel is headed. Three boys who are out, I imagine, I'm just making this part up now, searching for arrowheads in the fields from the Canaanite uh, warriors. They spot him, and they know who he is because everybody knows who Samuel is, and they go running back into the town, and they begin to, sp- to spread the word, God's prophet is approaching the village, legendary Samuel, white hair, long beard, tough, fierce and famous. Fear gripped every heart. What what had they done wrong? Who had sinned? Samuel wasn't known for just casually dropping by. His reputation did not rest on a lifetime of accumulated small talk. What terrible thing had happened in Bethlehem that required a prophetic visitation? Well, no one knew. 
But the good news is the anxiety soon gave way to anticipation. They went from being anxious to being excited because Samuel let them know as soon as he arrived that he was going to lead them in festive worship, that he was gathering them in celebration before God, much as we have gathered here today, except plus food. And so word got around and the mood shifted from, from guilt to gaiety in no time and they killed a cow and they dug a barbecue pit and they made a bunch of food and before very long the whole town has showed up. You know if you cook, people will come. At least I'll be there. (laughs) And so that's what they had done. And as it turned out, there was a little bit more to Samuel's visit than just a party. Now, it's a great party. And the whole town gets involved. And they're having a wonderful time. And they're so relieved that Samuel's not there to get them in trouble, but he's there to bless them. And in that town of Bethlehem, there's a local farmer. His name is Jesse. Ah, some of you are going, oh, okay. If not, just hang with me. There's a farmer there, he has eight sons, and Samuel has showed up to meet Jesse because somewhere in the journey, God has said, that's who I want you to talk to. Why Samuel is interested in Jesse and his sons was not made clear to all the people at the party, and that's okay, they're just having a great time. In fact, maybe God wanted it that way, but in time, they begin to notice. Samuel, as we know, is out looking for a replacement for King Saul. People cried out for a king, and God let them have Saul, and he looked good. Oh, he was tall and handsome, but he began to disobey, and God said, we've got to do something about it. So once Samuel, the old prophet, locates Jesse and his sons, he proceeds to interview and examine them. So we'll walk through that just for a second. Eliab, that's his name. He's the oldest. He's a swaggering bully. He is mountainous in his size. He has rough-hewn looks. He commands attention. And Samuel and everyone else is impressed by Eliab. Who could not be impressed? He's hawking and brutish. And Eliab gets his way by sheer strength. I was reading a commentator who described him like this. He had a black mop of hair that he never bothered to brush. And I love this sentence. His nose wandered down his face, looking until it was almost too late for a good place to stop. (laughs) Can't you get a picture of him? It mattered little whether people liked or disliked Eliab because Eliab got what he wanted by sheer domination. Clearly, here's a king. This is a man who can get things done. Samuel and everyone else in the community were taken by his appearance. But before long, Samuel's God-trained intuition looked past the height and the hair and the muscles and the dominance and looked at the heart. And God helped his prophet see there's no king material within Eliab. Abinadab is next. Again, a commentator I was reading described him as the intellectual snob of the family. Tall and stringy beanpole, he stood before Samuel with a sneering kind of arrogance. He used big words to show off his prestigious learning every chance he got. And it didn't take long for Samuel to say, next, Shammah the third. Shammah was a, according again to this commentator, mincing little sophisticate. <laughs> He hated backwater Bethlehem, mingling with these common people and their vulgar games and coarse entertainment. He just could not stand it. And so he didn't really know what Samuel was up to, but it looked to him like a ticket to the finer life. And so he squared his shoulders 
And Samuel dismisses him with a shake of the head. And in fact, though there are many more sons, the Bible doesn't even name them. Just the first three. Nope. Mm -mm. No way. One by one, and yet none was chosen. The show was over. Jesse, the father who brought his sons out, was pathetic in his disappointment. The sons are humiliated. The whole town is now gathered around and started to pay attention, and they're starting to get restless. They're feeling like, well, we want our money back, even though they didn't pay any money. They wanted to see Samuel, the great prophet. And the performance had started off pretty well. Great food, a big fancy gathering, everybody's attention, skillfully building. Is it this son? No. Is it this son? No. Is it this son? No. And surely one is going to be chosen, but no. And do you know, even Samuel is bewildered. We don't often think about that. Remember, he's been called of God, filled with God's Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, empowered to do the work of God, and he's going out to do the work of God, and he's sure he's going to find a son. And so what's happened? Did he miss something in God's message? Did, did I mishear you, God? Was, was Samuel old enough that he was losing his prophetic edge? Hmm, he's beginning to question himself. I, th- I think he must have turned around at some point and said, this is Bethlehem, isn't it? I'm in the right town. And he might have pulled someone aside, as I often do when I'm meeting so many new people, and said, now, what was that guy's name? It's Jesse, right? Yeah, it's Jesse. Jesse with all the sons. The old guy scratching his head. Well, there must be another son. And as it turns out, and as the whole world now knows, there was another son, David. But here's the thing about David. This is an old picture someone had on the internet, which I stole and put in this slide. If you don't know what's happening there, that's a horn of oil. And so that would be the sign of the anointing of this as the king. Samuel's been carrying that around with him this whole journey. And those of us who have hung around church a little bit know that oil often represents the Holy Spirit a little bit later. And so here is this idea, even way back in the Old Testament before the day of Pentecost, that God's Spirit rests on and empowers the people that God calls to do what God wants them to do. And he's anointing David. David enters the story unnamed, dismissively referred to as the baby brother, the youngest. In effect, the passage sort of reads, and we'll look at it in a minute, well, there's this baby brother, but he's out tending the sheep. He's the youngest of the eight brothers, so there's no way the rest of his life he doesn't get referred to as kid brother. It's just always going to be his plot in life, and it underscores the the insignificance that he must have felt. Certainly he is not a prime candidate for prestigious work called out by God's prophet Samuel. His father's condescending opinion of him shared presumably by his brothers is confirmed by the job that David gets to do, tending the sheep, the least demanding of all the jobs on the farm, the place where he could do the least Damage, it's like dog sitting for your neighbor or putting the groceries in the bag at the store or whatever. You can't mess it up too badly, so this is what we'll let you do. That's David's role. Because David's out of the way, mostly forgotten, he doesn't even get invited 
to Bethlehem for the big party where everybody else has been invited, and yet it is David who is chosen and anointed, receiving the power of God, chosen not for what anybody saw in him, but for what God saw in him. His brothers didn't see it in him. His father didn't see it in him. And even initially, Samuel is not recognizing this circumstance. But God sees something in David. And he calls him and anoints him. In the recorded history of God's mighty acts, we consistently learn that more often than not, God selects for his tasks the unlikely rather than the likely. And there's nowhere else better than this story to see it. Remember, this King Saul, the one that deteriorated and went away, that's the king that the people chose. Remember, I don't know if you know, but but there was a time that these judges were like speaking for God, and that's the way God liked it. But the people begin to look around. God's people, Israel, the ones delivered through the Red Sea, those people, they say, we wish we had a king. Look, everybody else has a king. How come we don't have a king? We're tired of the judges. We want a king. And God says, you don't want a king. And they're like, yes, we do. And they do this. I don't know if they did that or not. But they determine that they want a king. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. But you're not going to like it. And it turns out they didn't. But the king they chose is Saul. And now here in this moment, The one who was head and shoulders above the rest. The one who was prettier than the rest. The one who was stronger than the rest. The one whom everyone would look at and say, well, that certainly is a king. He is disqualified because why? His disobedience. His heart. It goes astray. And God chooses the unlikely. Jesus Christ is an unlikely savior, is he not? Think with me for just a minute. Born in this same town, Bethlehem. By the time of Jesus, Bethlehem is not much. It's kind of a backwater town that no one thinks about. Only the best of the scribes even remember that it's mentioned in the scriptures by the time of Jesus. Jesus' mother is unwed. Jesus' father is a carpenter. There's scandal around the whole thing. This certainly does not look like our Savior. This was certainly not the Messiah that his people expected. And yet God chose to send his son, Jesus. And while we're thinking about that, Jesus also chose some unlikely people to follow him, did he not? Probably a bunch of people who had flunked out of rabbinic school. And so they returned back to the family trade, fishermen public service. And Jesus found them and said, I would like you to follow me. I'm not going to give you superhuman powers. I'm not going to get rich doing this. And I know that you are fallible and fickle. But Jesus chose the unlikely. Did you know that the name Nazarene that is emblazoned on your church and hopefully in your hearts was chosen Because it resembled Jesus, the humble Nazarene. It's who we are. Not the fanciest. Not the most obvious. And the Nazarenes, as Nazarenes, we are organized around a very specific mission. And that mission is this, to make 
Christ-like disciples in the nations. If you wonder what a Nazarene is all about, what's this denomination exists to do? What is the, what is the reflection that we should have in this local church? The, the reflection that you should have of the name that you bear is that we join with all the other churches of the Nazarene in making Christ-like disciples in Chillicothe and the nations. It's who we are. And you might say to me, not so fast, who's the we when you say we? <laughs> it's you. And it's me. The we is us. <laughs> it's a terrible sentence, but it's true. When we say that we are Nazarenes and this is what we do, this is what we do. We make Christ-like disciples in the nations. And so you might be thinking, Somebody does that, but surely, Pastor Sam, you don't mean me. And I would say to you, perfect. I'm so glad you said that. Just remember what I told you a second ago, that more often than not, in the recorded history of God and his mighty acts, it's not the ones that are obvious that God chooses. It's who? It's us. It's you. You're like, ah, oh, this isn't even my church. I don't even go to church here. I just, someone promised me lunch, and I came. Good. Well, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm also talking to you. And some of you say, I've been a part of this church my whole life. Good. Because God chooses you and me to do this thing that he's asked us to do. Now, again, if I were going to preach on discipleship, you might assume that I would show up here with Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus said, therefore go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them and so forth. That's like the classic discipleship passage. So why the story of David's anointing by Samuel? Why would we choose this passage to begin? Because in this story, we find the building blocks for discipleship. In this story, we discover that though none of us here is being called to be a king, like I don't have a, I don't have a horn of oil. I, I told Jill this morning, don't let me forget the horn of oil. I'm going to take it down there to chill a coffee. I'm going to pour it on everybody's head. And she forgot to tell me. No, I, don't have, I don't have a horn of oil. I didn't bring that with me. So nobody here is going to be king today. Maybe you're relieved. I would be. But I want to suggest to you today that what God did to David, he wants to do to you. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know me. I know. So lest you think I made everything up, we're going to run through, not run through, but we're going to read through this passage. It's in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it's on the screen there. You can follow along. I'm probably going to read it kind of fast. Because I just told you the story, but we're going to fact check real quick to make sure I didn't make it up. All right, so here we go. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king forever over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass, but uh, Samuel said, not, no, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Hello, my name is David. And so is yours. The bottom line of this message today, if you leave here today and go to a restaurant or run into somebody that knows you and they say, how was church? I don't know if people still do that or not, but if they do, you could say whatever. And if they say, what was it about? And I wish you would get that question, but you might not. But if you do, here's what you can say. We are all David. There's your answer. That's the bottom line of this message. You'll forget a bunch of stuff I said by the time you sit down at a table in a little bit, but you could remember that. We are all David in this story. You say, how? Well, I'll try to tell you quickly. Now, I gave you like two-thirds of an introduction, now one-third of a message. One, you are a part of God's unfolding story. David was a part of God's unfolding story, and David accepted the role that God had asked him to play. Once David shows up, having been called in from the fields, where I'm sure he's sweaty and sunburned and all of that, the Bible said he had a glowing appearance, didn't it? Yeah, he was sunburned. He'd been out with the sheep. Once that oil gets poured over his head, his life changes forever from that point on. He had to leave home. He had no idea what life would be like from that day forward. He entered into a strange environment serving the outgoing king. He risked his life with Goliath. Remember that? That's what happens to you when you follow. (laughs) And by the time chapter 18 of this same book that we're reading comes about, King Saul has turned on David and tries to kill him multiple times. How are you going to be king if you're dead? The call for David to follow God without reservation is key for us. This is how you're David. Because that call that God gave to David prefigures the call for the disciples who follow Jesus. Didn't they have a very similar circumstance? Didn't the disciples have to leave home when Jesus called them? Yes. Did they have any idea what their life would look like from that day forward? No way. Did they enter into a strange environment in service of the king, capital K, the master, Jesus? They absolutely did. Did they risk their life with a variety of giants, so to speak, enemies? Better believe it. The call for David to follow prefigures the call that Jesus made to the disciples, and the call that Jesus made to the disciples prefigures his call to you and me, to us. You say, not me, and I say, oh, (laughs) thanks for saying that. Absolutely you, because that's the way God works. The one in here who assumes that you are the least likely, congratulations. You're first in line, so to speak. You are a part of God's unfolding story. Jesus has invited you, 
this morning, or maybe before this morning, to step into the relative unknown and follow him. You've been praying for your neighbors. I heard it. Are there more neighbors? Yeah. Are there neighbors that aren't the neighbors of the church, but they're the neighbors of you, where you live? Yeah. Is it possible that God has you strategically located in this world because he wants to use you to be a part of his unfolding story? If it's freaking you out this morning, I have good news for you. At the end of Jesus' commission, remember that I mentioned Matthew 28, 19, therefore go into all the world and make disciples. Here's the best news. Uh, David didn't get this news in the Old Testament, but you get this news. Jesus said after giving that commission, he said, and uh, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. If you're thinking this morning, I can't be a part of God's unfolding plan, huh? take a deep breath. Jesus has promised that he would be with you. He's going to set the pace. You're not going to do it like everybody else. He's going to set the pace. You just walk with him, and he'll take care of you. That's, that's one thing I want you to know. There's only two more. Here's the second one. You have a role to play in this story. David accepted the role that God had asked him to play in this big story that unfolds all the way from Genesis to Revelation. David plays a key part in that, right? What if you have a key part? I mean, the disciples also played a key part. So we've been walking through like what God did with David, he did with the disciples, he does with us. Is that still true? Yes, what God did with David was a key part to play. Did the disciples have a key part to play? You better believe it. So therefore, so do you. You're a part of God's unfolding story and you have a role to play. And so you might be asking, and I don't blame you, what's our role? Twofold. Number one, be a disciple. Well, that's okay. Be a follower of Jesus. It's the whole point of the story of God. It's the reason that God chose to redeem us. God didn't just choose to redeem us, easy for me to say, to take us to heaven someday, although that's a part of it. And I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to be there, and I want you to be there too. I want to meet your mom. That's a good thing, but that's not the whole reason. You know why God saved us? You know why he saved you? To be a follower of his. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's reason one, to be a follower of Jesus. What's your role to play? To be a disciple. Here's the second part. To make disciples. And here you're like, oh, I'm out on that, I think. Like, I'm not good at talking to people. Okay. I'm shy. Okay. But from the calling of the disciples to the great commission, Jesus' plan for them never changed. And from your salvation to this moment, this morning, God's plan for you has never changed, and you'll do it differently than everybody else, and you don't have to have a cookie-cutter approach. But I want you to understand today that God is calling you through his son Jesus to be a follower of Jesus and to help other people become followers of Jesus. It's real Simple to understand, not always easy to accomplish. Be a disciple. Make disciples. And by that, I mean help other people become disciples. So you're part of God's unfolding story. You have a role to play. And here's the last thing I want to tell you today. I know you might feel unqualified. 
well, welcome, you're among friends. If there's ever been anyone who feels unqualified for his job, you're looking at him. It's not a job I ever sought, not a thing I ever really wanted to do. I was happy to be a pastor. So thanks for calling me pastor. You can call me Sam, but whatever. None of us really feels qualified. I can relate to that feeling, but let's go back to the words that, that are spoken here in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, I love this, uh, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Here it is. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, thank God for that. The issue of whether or not you will take your place in the unfolding story of God is an issue of the heart, first of all. How is your heart this morning? The issue of being a disciple and helping other people become disciples is a matter that begins deep inside you where no one else knows, only God the Holy Spirit knows. That's where it begins. And here's the good news. I think this is true. You tell me what you think when I'm done. When the heart is moved, actions follow. You're like, prove it. Okay, thanks. I will. Yesterday, I was on the campus of Mount Vernon Nazarene University. That's where I met Jill. I I didn't know her before that. She was from a far-off country, West Virginia. And so, I'm an Ohio kid, and I had never met anyone. I don't think I met anyone from West Virginia. But I know this, that the first time I ever saw her, something inside of me went, doo 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 Like my heart, I said, hello. And I didn't know what to do with all of that. And so, finally, I let her catch me, and it was beautiful. That's not true. But eventually, we met. And not very long after that, we started to fall in love. Now, guys, I don't mean to embarrass you today. Like, if you don't want to talk about this, too bad. (laughs) But we fell in love. And you know what I discovered? That when my heart was moved, it changed my behaviors. My normal routines. I get up, I go to breakfast, I go to class, I go play basketball, I hang out with my friends. All of that got interrupted. Because suddenly... My heart got involved. I began to search for ways to express this love that I felt, so I gave gifts. There's no way I compare to the the gifts that Jill gives. Like, she's a gift giver. But I tried, too, in response to that. And And I spent time with her. It didn't matter what we were doing. Do you want to go to the library? Yes. Do you want... I have to go... Yes. I'm just like, I'm holding up a sign that says, it doesn't matter, let's go because I wanted to be with her. She said things like, do you like bagels with cream cheese? Yes. It impacted my routines and my time and the gifts that I gave and my plans and my my routines and my dreams, even my diet. Because when the heart was really moved, the actions followed. Really quickly, and I got to hurry up, but... Another story in the New Testament, just pretend like we've been talking about this for a long time, but Simon Peter's always getting in trouble, and when Jesus is about to be crucified, Simon Peter says, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him, and a rooster crows. We can talk about it later if you want to know more. 
And then after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus pulls them aside. They're having like a get-together. A little cookout on the beach. Jesus caught some fish, which is cool to me. I think like Jesus, I don't know how he did that, but whatever. He's made a fire and he's cooking fish. And he pulls Peter aside and he said, hey, man, listen to this question. Do you love me? You know I do. Then Jesus gives him what? Action. Because when the heart's moved, the actions follow. Do you love me? Feed my sheep or make disciples. Do you love me? Yeah. I, weren't you listening? I just said. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep, whichever translation you have. Okay, good. Peter must be like, okay, we got this nailed down. Jesus is like, do you love me? <laughs> and the Bible says Peter's feelings get hurt because he's like, man, why is he asking me the third time? Yes. Then take action, Jesus says, because when the heart is moved, actions follow. What I want to say to you today is that you are, you are a part of God's unfolding plan. And the moment you feel unqualified, brace yourself because God is calling you. And it will be your heart of love that empowers you by the Holy Spirit to do the work that Jesus is asking you to do. So I want to give you a new job description. You're like, I am retired. Good. You have more time to do this job description that I'm telling you. You're like, I have this other job. Good, because this job description fits with that one. In fact, this other job that you have is strategic from God's perspective. So what I want you to think about as far as your relationship with Jesus is that attending church is good, but that's not the goal. I'm glad you're here. You should always be here. This you need as a part of your life, the seven-day rhythm. You need it, but this isn't all there is. You're a part of God's unfolding plan. And his goal for you is what God's goal has always been. You're like, always? Well, think about it. What is, this, what is the two-word summary of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation? Is it not God saying, follow me? Yeah. That's why those are Jesus' words when Jesus comes to earth and walks along the seashore and sees Peter and Andrew and James and John, he says, follow me. It's an echo it's been going on throughout God's word all along. So this, I want you to see this picture. You can't tell, but that guy climbing that mountain, believe it or not, is me. And I barely believe it. Because I have a paralyzing fear of falling. I know some of you are thinking heights. I'm not afraid of heights, happy to go up high, as long as there's not a real chance that I'll fall. Therefore, on the second floor of the mall, because the railing is about this high and I'm kind of tall, I don't like it, because if somebody pushes me, I could fall. I don't like second floors of malls. Or those hotels that open up and there's like a balcony, you're like, oh, let's go sit on the balcony. No thanks, because I could fall. Isn't that weird about me? That's me climbing flagstone rock in Oregon. What you can see is that I'm there on the mountain. What you cannot see are these things. I'm not alone. There were three other guys with me, two of whom were expert climbers, one of whom has been climbing for over 40 years and has climbed El Capitan and all the other great places on the West Coast. So it was quite a trip. I am connected. You can't see it very well, but that's a rope right there. It's a good rope. 
I thank God for that rope <laughs> many times. And it's attached to an, an elaborate harness. Maybe some of you have climbed before, but it's attached to an elaborate harness. And if I should slip, it wouldn't be a second or two before the person who's holding the other end of that rope can stop it, and I don't go smashing to my death down at the bottom of that mountain. And I can hear the voice of the one who has been there before. So my friend Dan, the one who's climbed for over 40 years, if you could see the video of this, which I don't have, he would be saying, that's it, good, bud. He called me bud the whole time. I don't even know him that well. That's good, bud. About 18 inches to your right, that's a good place to put your foot. That little tiny crack that looks like a hairline fracture in the rock, you can stand on that. Go ahead, stand on it. Press yourself. You got it. And he talked me all the way up that mountain and back down. And I would never dream that this is for me. Why, why do I show you that? Because you have a new job description from Jesus who is inviting you to not just attend here, even though this is amazing and you should do it, but he's inviting you to recognize that you are a part of his unfolding plan. And the more unqualified you feel, the more he's calling you. And you're like, oh man, what am I going to do? You are not alone. You are connected to Jesus. And there is a voice, and the voice that you hear is talking you through every move you make, if you listen. And the overarching theme of his conversation with you is, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, today, you've led us to this point to think about what it means to be your disciple and to make disciples. And for many of us, that idea is frightening, and I understand that because it's a little frightening to me too. But knowing, Jesus, that you said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age gives me comfort. And knowing what you did in David, that oil representing your Holy Spirit, and knowing what you did in those disciples who are fallible and fickle until the day that they receive your Holy Spirit on Pentecost, then they become powerful. Knowing those things, I can say that if, the God's, if God's Holy Spirit fills me, though I feel unqualified, he will make me qualified. So I pray that you will bless every fearful heart today. Speak to us. Call us. Invite us to follow you. And enable us, Jesus, to say yes. Thank you for the call and the invitation to be a part of your unfolding plan. All of this we ask together in Jesus' name. Bless you.